lovers, this is Dr. Candace Nicole with How to Love a Human. You can follow me and the How to Love a Human project on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candace Nicole and HowToLoveAHuman.com, where I welcome your contribution to the conversation. Today, I'm dialoguing with Lamisha, and I appreciate all you lovers out there for taking this journey with me to discover. Hey everyone, today on How to Love a Human, I am with Dr. Lamisha Hill. Hey Lamisha. Hey Candice. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Good. It's Saturday. Yes, it's it sunny is. Today. <laughs> it sure is. It's a beautiful Thank sunny you. Saturday. So I want to start with my non-researchy question first. Are you feeling human or human as fuck today? Half. I'm just feeling human. Uh, mm. When I go outside, I might get a little, a little elevated. Uh, but being indoors right now, I'm a little disconnected. Um, so right now, I'm feeling human, but I, I hope to get on that level pretty soon. Okay, so for you, human feels less connected than human as fuck. Yes, yes, yes. In what way? I think you know just. Uh, being around other people, I think that we can move through the world in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, one, being intentional and being aware. And I don't think that always means like that you have to be smiling at everybody and saying hello to everybody. Well, that's very much appreciated. And I do love those people in the world that are like that. Um, I just I just appreciate it when, when I'm aware of other people mm-hmm. and when other people are aware of me. Right. You know? when, they, when they see you and... Um, move with it around you in a way that that, that honors your presence. Mm. Move with and around you in a way that honors well, your presence. Think about going to Whole Foods and how that could just be <laughs> <laughs> a nightmare, right? <laughs> like, sometimes folks just act like you don't exist, and and other times, you know, they're very considerate. So you, I just hope that because it's one of those those small things that just irks me so badly Mm -hmm. Um, I try to be cognizant and aware of other people and um yeah living in the bay area riding like public transit oh yeah every day uh it's it's challenging to see people you know at times be very self-centered and Mm -hmm. then at other times like be very kind um so you'll get you'll get both of it that's real I find myself being aware of other people only to the extent where I'm respecting their space, but not wanting to be too aware because I think I'm way too feely to keep myself aware of people all the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, uh-huh. em- the empath in me is has to cut off certain level of awareness or else I feel overwhelmed with whatever is going on in their, their insides. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, so I'm going to jump right in. Share with me your most salient identities. Who are you? So I am Lamisha Hill, and I identify as an African-American woman, uh, heterosexual, cisgendered, mm-hmm. uh, preferred pronouns are she, her, hers, mm-hmm. and currently able-bodied. And uh, a pet owner, a dog owner. Because mm-hmm. there's a difference between being a pet owner and a dog owner. Dog people are special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I actually will want to iterate on that one more time and probably just say dog mother. Okay, you know? take it all the way. How do yeah. you how do you differentiate? Yeah, you know my my dog Pendleton. He's he's really he is like my child. You mm-hmm. know, like he needs care. He needs daily attention, um, consideration, time spent with him. You know, I can't just kick him to the curb and let him take care of himself. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that kind of nurturing and uh, awareness of another breathing being, yeah. whether it's animal or human, uh, just requires a, a higher level of thoughtfulness and consideration. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned being an African-American woman, a pet owner, cisgendered, able-bodied. What makes those identities stand out versus others? So for me, um, I actually facilitate a social identity profile uh, as part of my work as uh, a psychologist and a diversity educator. Tell me what that means, because everybody might not know exactly what a social identity profile is. So we have multiple (laughs) aspects of identity, uh, particularly if you think about the the word diversity Mm -hmm. and how that is um, broken down into various categories. Um, There are federally protected categories of identity uh, being um, race, gender, disability status, veteran status. uh, I'm probably going to mess them up, sexual orientation, but there's there's some more. Right. And there's other aspects of identity uh, such as language, country Mm -hmm. of origin, um, size, that impact how people move through the world and what they think there's this intersection of a there's an intersection of identities one being that we don't just sit in one aspect of my identity of our identities right that i am not just a female i'm an african-american female Mm -hmm. and how that feels and looks different for me is that in certain spaces being female and i and and this is so interesting for me because i don't I don't recall experiencing this in other places that I've lived. Yeah. Living in the Bay Area, it's, I mean, it's not that it's dangerous. I think that folks just need to be aware. Okay. Okay. I don't, I don't want to, you know, communicate a level of threat or danger that is, that is not there, but I have had to be way more aware of what does it mean to be female, right? Mm. Being in the world in a space where, People take liberties with the way in which they communicate. Yeah. Um, that I think uh, falls into spaces of sexism and misogyny. And that really is heightened by my awareness of being female, right? That's, so that's one aspect of my identity. However, you know, I could be walking down the street and someone might say, you know, try to holler, just speak to me in a certain way. That's not necessarily disrespectful, but like, I always try to tell folks that like, hello is not an invitation for a conversation. Mm -hmm, That mm -hmm. as as another human being, I want to acknowledge the humanity in other people, but it doesn't mean that I want to give somebody my number. Exactly. Yep. Um, so I try not to be rude and I try to communicate, um, in a respectful manner, but, but, you know, I try to, I would say, like, do it in a certain way that it doesn't miscommunicate an invitation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, I, and that could be one hello and me acknowledging or someone could say hello to me and I just might nod or wave or, you know, 
speak in a very soft way. And then there could just be another brother who I've seen before. Uh, there's, I'm thinking about this man that, that I walk past almost every day who works at one of the bar restaurants um, on my block. Mm-hmm. And we have so much rapport. And he'll just be like, hey, sweetheart. And I'm like, hey, he's like, you come back from work. How's your day? This and the other. And that's also an intersection because he's a brother and mm. I'm a sister. He's going to speak to me in a certain, he speaks to me in a certain type of way. Okay. And that is when I, when I talk about intersection, right? It's not that I'm now, I'm not just sitting in my identity as a female. I'm sitting in my identity as a, as a African-American, as a black woman mm. when I communicate with mm-hmm. him, right? And it's, it's a very different type of communication. Uh, and I think about some of the other brothers in my neighborhood that look out for me or that, you know, might, you know, we have a different type of rapport, a different type of dialogue or interchange. Um, so there's so, like a, con- a different level of connection yes, and the way you communicate reflects that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And that's at the intersection of your identities as both black and female. Correct. Mm-hmm. And you, t- okay, so what I wanted to also hear was what, a social identity. What did you say it was? Your what oh, you social profile. profile? Yeah, like you do that for people. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, I do it in a worksheet form, and it, it essentially outlines some of the most common um, aspects of one's identity, um, being ethnicity, race, and how those are different, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are those core boxes that people see you as? Black, white, Latino, Asian, mm-hmm. or you know, how do you truly identify as being uh, of a person from the Caribbean yeah. or from, uh, you know, a specific country in South America, you know, not just Latino, right? right? Um, or specific country in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the other asks gender, sexual orientation, and like that two-step model of, you know, what's the difference between sex and gender mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you know letting people really self-identify um country of origin citizenship language um if you speak other languages um body size and i always like to leave a few blanks because i think just like you you asked me an open-ended question yeah. um I, I think that it's a it's a starting point but it's never a complete process to name someone's identity mm-hmm. and you have to allow for people to communicate what's most important to them in the way that they see themselves, if that's being a parent or, you know, being, you know, for a lot, of, I work with a lot of students. So, you know, I like to validate that um, there's a lot of gamers out there yeah. and a lot of yeah. students have um, an identity wrapped in, in, in their, their concepts of themselves as being a gamer. And for, for me, I see that as a, for them, it's a point of pride, right? That it's something that they're very, very good at. A lot of students could compete, could, you know, could be competitive gamers, but you know, it's not necessarily the most popular thing to do. Um, so just leaving, leaving for some room for people to self-identify. And then there's this piece of how do you see yourself? Mm-hmm. How does the world see you? Yeah. And where is where, where are aspects of privilege and or perhaps marginalization? Got it. So you noted some things, even in how you help other people self-identify, that you didn't mention. So what about things like age or body size or language, nationality, parental status, all of that. What about those identities for you? I would say for me, those identities are a little bit less salient. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. um, 
partly because I think about the age thing and sometimes that's salient and sometimes it's not. And I think that now that I'm in my thirties, I've come into this place, even though I'm perhaps young appearing, I, in my everyday work, um, people know who I am. Yeah. And I have a lot of, I think I have a lot of power and privilege yeah. in the work that I do, mm-hmm. um, holding the extra letters behind my name. And I, I feel significant in that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an, an internalized significance. And my age doesn't, tr- does not typically come up in a space that of my everyday operation where I work. Got it. That's an issue. Um, if I go into some other spaces and I'm feeling less, uh, you know, perhaps acknowledged, mm-hmm. uh, that might be a, a point. And I think that we have to be aware of what are we, what aspects of our identities are we sitting in and what are we holding? Um, and when are we feeling like, Oh wow. Like, you know, I feel icky. Right. But what about that is not feeling so great. Is it, is it something related to an self insecurity or as you're moving through these intersectional identities, what is a position of privilege and then what is a position of marginalization? Got it. Cause on one hand you might be, a real grown person around the people you work with. Like, oh, you're in your 30s, you're grown to teenagers and to children. You're probably old, you know, like (laughs) I was around some kids the other day and I was like, oh, I'm old. Okay, cool. I'm old. (laughs) And they were talking about specific types of music, but in a, in a, another setting, you could very well be the most junior person in there. And there could be some things that intersect with, how people are treating you or right. talking over you or something like that, that might come up and make it more salient. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Even though I'm able-bodied, I am, you know, under five foot three. Mm-hmm. And sometimes riding the BART, which is uh, the Bay Area Public Transit, mm-hmm. it's, it's challenging because, again, we talked about this, we, this is where we started the conversation about yeah. being self-aware. People that are t- of taller stature, if they don't have any visible, I don't know, I would say arm mobility issues, they can hold on to different yes. things on the train <laughs> and reach that comfortably, whereas I am stretching and pretty mm-hmm. much like hanging from my arm <laughs> and I can't reach. And, I, you know, it's just not a safe or comfortable ride for me. And... You know, I say that and that's in one space in my everyday experience that I'm like very much aware that I'm a shorter uh, of shorter stature, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it's not to the point where, you know, I still feel privileged as an able bodied person that I don't walk into a building or a room and wonder how am I going to get from the first floor to the second floor if there are stairs. Right. Mm hmm. I had one other person talk about height. And she was tall and she talked about what it means to be a tall woman in visibility. And I wonder if being a short woman means anything as it relates to visibility for you. You know, what's funny is that every time I I remind people that I'm short, they're like, oh, I never saw you as being Mm -hmm. short because I start carrying myself in a certain type of way. I don't always wear heels or anything like that. Um, But I, I... for me, I think my ego is probably a little <laughs> gives me a couple extra inches. I feel and, you. <laughs> I think you just have to like command some space yes. every now and again. I feel world. you. And, uh, I I don't know if that comes from you know learning how to do that at a young age of being assertive, um, and I don't see a problem with being assertive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people want to say what they want to say about black women and being assertive all they want. 
but um, that's how I move in the world. Yeah. And I get to own it. And this is where I, I feel human as fuck right now. Hey. Treat me like I'm five foot if you want to. Right. We'll find out the hard way. <laughs> you say you don't play about that. I feel so you. It's how I move in the world. And so it's like, it doesn't, you know, like me being of, of shorter stature, particularly as a female, is not, you know, something that comes comes up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I know that if I was, you know, um, a male of the same size and stature, that might be a really challenging thing to experience yeah. because our Western culture values tall men. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I identify so much with what you're saying. Like when people, when I stand up around people, they're like, oh my gosh, you are tiny. And I'm like, am I? Because I don't realize that I'm 5'1 most of the time. And people are surprised that I'm 5'1 given my disposition. Mm-hmm. 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 What about other things? We I think you mentioned um, body size and nationality. You said those aren't as salient. Yeah, I think that, you know, growing up, um, I, I identify as African American mm-hmm. and um, I grew up in a majority Euro American white environment in the suburbs of Illinois. And I've always navigated being one of the only, the onlys, right? Yeah. Pick a, yeah. Pick a color, pick a color, you know, <laughs> onlys. Um, in, in a lot of spaces, and then I went to graduate school at the University of Oregon, and while what I found was that the, the I think that the culture was different, mm-hmm. and I think I might have assumed that all white people were the same mm-hmm. in some ways, okay. but culturally, mm-hmm. uh, or, Oregonians are very different from the folks that I grew up in, with. Gotcha. Um, in suburban in Illinois, yeah. Yeah, and so that was something interesting to learn about, you know, how there are, there are those sort of within-group differences, right? Even though, they were, to me, they were all look white. Yeah. You know, they were very different. Um, and not necessarily in, like, a negative way, but just how they socialized, how they communicated, uh, interpersonally, uh, some of those different things. Um, so, and then now living in the Bay Area, there was just so much diversity that... It's it's really it's really beautiful to see uh, just how much diversity there is, and so being an African American woman is not while it's a salient part of my identity. Uh, it's not something that I I don't think I think about. Oh wait, yeah, it's because I'm a black woman like gotcha. every day. Mm-hmm. Did it? Um, did you choose the Bay Area for its diversity, or did? The diversity no, in the Bay Area choose you for some. <laughs> it is kind of a default, a little bit of a little, a little bit of a combination. Okay. But you know, from graduate school, you know the game. You have to go on internship, mm-hmm. and then you got to find a job. And um, I ended up doing a postdoc in the Bay Area, and I have uh, a number of friends that were also here, and I built a lot of relationships, and I just wanted to stay. Yeah. So yeah, I stayed. Got it. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh-huh. What does love mean to you? Love. It reminds me of that Lauryn Hill song mm. where, or that whole album 
that whole miseducation. miseducation. Yes. Love, and like the kids are on the album talking about love, and they're so wise and so young, and it was so beautiful for anybody who remembers this album. That's my like, one of my favorites of all time. <laughs> So um, some of the things that I noted that for me, love uh, is, is a reflection of action, connectedness, and compassion. Mm-hmm. Break that down for me, please. Um, love is not always just a feeling. I think that it, it can manifest in an emotion, mm-hmm. but in its, I think in its purest form, that it is a behavior that then, and, and as a psychologist, we you know there's a relationship between our thoughts, our feelings, and our behaviors. Mm-hmm. I teach people this all the time. So yes, love can traverse those three dimensions of thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, mm-hmm. right? When you ruminate on somebody or if you think about a family member and, you know, you are warmed by that thought, mm-hmm. um, if you go out of your way to make sure that, you know, someone is cared for, whether that's a friend or a romantic partner in action that, or a behavior. And then the emotion that comes uh, and the feelings that you experience out of that love and out of that care, whether it's um, peace. Sometimes mm-hmm. love can be calming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be comforting. It can be exciting. You know, it can show up and feel in a, in a number of different ways. So... I think love really is fluid in those in those in those areas of mm-hmm. our thoughts and feelings and our actions. When you say fluid, what do you mean? Meaning, I think that it that it the one single word that we have in the English dictionary, and maybe that's part of it. Yeah, right? that maybe in other cultures there are different words for love that are that differentiate thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Okay. And I think we have some, right? Like compassion Mm -hmm. or kindness or, you know, gratitude, right? Those are all love words, loving words. Um, But I think that we have oriented around those four letters culturally in our Western culture in a way that it's just kind of, it's a kind of big jumbled box, Mm -hmm. right? And I do think that, I think that, this project that you're doing um, is really challenging folks to really break down what's in this big bucket that we just dump everything into of love, you know, sexual attraction, Mm -hmm. uh, romantic love, um, family love, uh, friendship love, uh, things that excite us, things that we can't live without, Mm. Things that we go out of our way for and we suffer in because of love, right? Like, we have culturally, I think, just put everything in this. Anything we have an affinity for mm-hmm. or a connection to, you think it gets housed in that frame of love. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. I do. And I think it's worthwhile and uh, in, in, in teasing it apart a little bit more. And oftentimes, you know, I... I joke that as a psychologist, you know, I, I, I only have, there's this exercise in psychology called color your, your world or color your feelings. Mm. And I joke that I have like a standard eight pack Crayola of emotions, right? (laughs) What does that mean? It means that like, if yellow was like happy, it's 
just yellow. Got it. If it's like blue and sad, it's just blue. (laughs) You know, like I don't have periwinkle. (laughs) (laughs) I'm taking this emotional competence class too. So I'm starting to develop my language around Mm. feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. a little bit better. But that it takes a lot of time and energy. And so if like if love was like a shade, well, usually anger gets shaded in red. Right. Uh, so, you know, love might be a little bit more of a shade of pink. Right. So but it's just pink. Right. Like, you know, like, is it rose? Is it, <laughs> you know, what is the color of like, you know, that cotton candy pink when the sky sets? Kind, mm. You know, like, like, like we have to really dig into it and really take it apart and not just let it be just this one flat tone. And then it's something a little different for everyone. Even if there's some overlap in the definitions, I'm finding that love, love's definitions are beginning to look gendered and raced. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, this is not what I expected, but this is interesting for me to see. Wow. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to what I said about suffering because I think that surprised me when it came out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Say more. Uh, that I think there's something really loving, and maybe this is just the 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 spiritual side of me, and I do identify as Christian. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's something about about love in that way of sacrifice mm-hmm. and giving mm-hmm. others. Mm-hmm. Um, the humility in that. And there is the great peace. humility and sacrifice. Wow. Yeah. And the grace that comes, right? So what is birthed out of that action of sacrifice um, in, in that giving? What do you think <laughs> happens when a person sacrifices? Like, what do you think it unpacks or releases in them? I, I think of it, there's always, there's always a two-part process, right? Yeah. And, and I think that when we do for others, whether it is altruism or, in, and that's like, you know, oh, I love to volunteer because it makes me feel good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't want to be, you know, there's something selfish about that, right? Yeah. That, that there's something about your privilege in the world for people that do this, and, not, and I'm not saying it in a negative way. But just acknowledging that sometimes people manage their their feelings of privilege by sacrifice and by through sacrifice and through giving. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something in there that's selfish, I think, because not always does the other person that if we are orienting to sacrifice from a person to person perspective, we're thinking about it in that way when you give to somebody else or you go out of your way for somebody else. Not all the time does that person either ask, need, or want what you're giving them. Mm-hmm. And I've had to learn this the hard way, yeah. right? Like, you know, we think that, like, look, I know you need this. So I'm just going on, go on and sacrifice and do this thing for you that you didn't ask me to do. <laughs> but I, I know that you need it. And I'm going to feel a certain type of way about me going out of my way giving it to you. But, you know, even if you didn't ask. Right. I guess that's what I that's what I mean about the sacrifice. That sometimes it is it's very pure, um, and sometimes it can be presumptuous, mm. and sometimes it can be selfish. Got it. 
So between pure, presumptuous, it, and selfish. And sometimes can be selfless, right? Okay. You know, you know, and people really, really, truly do, like, you know, give their lives for other people. Um, but in, in a moment or in a way that it's not like they have oriented their identity around what does it mean to for me to do this? Mm, but, you mm-hmm. know, in a very, very selfless way. Um, think about parents, right, who go without so their children have. Yeah. And that it's not, what am I going to get out of this in the long run? But mm-hmm. this is what needs to be done or what I'm choosing to do because mm-hmm. that human deserves this best that I can offer. Mm-hmm. Mm. And their need even if it's not greater than mine, but I'm going to put my needs to the side. Got it. Hmm. Or whatever it is that I endure as a result of this giving, I will bear, right? Yeah. For this person. And bear in a way that may not ever disclose to the other person Mm -hmm. what the Mm -hmm. burden might be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And see, for me, as I'm thinking about the people from whom I've heard up to date, that is definitely a raced and gendered position. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm I'm so interested in how it comes out. But, um, like, the way black women talk about love. Mm-hmm. When I ask this part of the question, what does love mean to you? And then the next question I'm going to ask you, what would it be like if the world loved black women? Mm-hmm. I get a totally different answer. Yeah. Well, and I feel like, you know... As a black woman, mm-hmm. and it's seeing and witnessing black women across my lifespan and historically, um, the level of of shouldering mm-hmm. um, that they have endured, and that I think generationally we learn to also replicate, mm-hmm. is phenomenal in the sense that I think it creates such a deep strength and I think that that strength goes is taken for granted yeah is um, not acknowledged and is oftentimes abused mm. say more about that not acknowledged and often abused yeah, um, I think about women in the world, glo- and this is a really a global perspective, black women in the world globally, right? Mm-hmm. Um, images that we've all seen that that they are left to bear, right? Whether it's children um, and, and, and in solidarity. Mm-hmm. And then you have this, this Western, because of our historical relationship to slavery, right? of another generational, well, it's generational, but it's also like, you know, from a, a, a certain period of time, 
of black women enduring and bearing and caring for, taking care of children, taking care of other people's children. Right. Um, being in that role of, of essentially, and, and I forget which, um, black author and artist has talked about this, but essentially the mule, right? Mm -hmm. Was that Zora Neale Hurston? Yeah, created mules, right? Because they can shoulder more weight than just, you know, a cross between a donkey and a horse, right? right. They are uh, physically stronger, right? So you you weigh them down as much as you can and discard of them when they are no longer needed. Mm. Um, and then you have another era of the impacts of mass incarceration and the further I think destruction of, of a traditional and it, and it, and I know that research has gone back and forth about you know whether or not you know black women are married or you know single right. parents and this and that and the other and who do they marry and blah 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 blah, blah. but I, I I don't know if you can really argue the fact that so many of us know so many black women right. that have raised children independently um, and that have taken on a certain level of responsibility and burden that men just don't do. Yeah. In a way that they just don't do it. That they're not held accountable to do it. They're not taught to do it. They're not judged for not doing mm-hmm. it. Frankly. Is there a, see, as you're talking about this, it's making me think about how we adopt that as a part of our identity and adapt to that requirement, right? And to to make it, to make it right for us, to make it work for us, there's an honor that comes with like mothering and, and shouldering, mothering and shouldering that. We speak to like it doesn't cost us something, too. Hmm. Well, I would say, as I think about this from a con, I really am thinking about this a little bit more abstractly. Mm-hmm. There's, there's little bits and pieces, I think, that are tethering to my own lived experience. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm not a mother. But yeah. I think generationally how this how this pattern of bearing and burden and carrying and being expected to carry and to be put upon to another level has raised the standard for my generation of black women. Mm, okay. And, and this is not a knock against brothers who are also successful and, and out in the world doing their thing. But I don't think, I don't see black women showing up not taking care of their business yeah in the world whether that's having a job having their degrees in order having their money in order to a certain extent you know Mm -hmm. they they are this this it, it has it has i think changed and shifted over time yeah and for me now it looks like you know this black woman who is just super exceptional because and this is the part for me i think that i adopted is that i don't i don't i don't have the luxury to show up less than Mm. you can't show up half-assed 
any no, other. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, I was taught that, you know, this is from, and this is another psychology term of race, racial socialization. Mm-hmm. How, what your parents teach about to you about what it means to be black and brown in the world and, and for, for good or for bad, right? Mm-hmm. Does mm-hmm. both uh, the strength factors, but also like the little warnings. Yeah. And I was taught that you can't be black and average. Mm-hmm. Be successful. You can be white and average and be successful yeah. and get a job, right? But yeah. what we know about the rates of jobs, right? We know that the that the black folk has to come from Harvard to get the same job as the the white person who comes from a middle tier school, right? Right. That's statistically proven. Mm-hmm. So, so it was. My mother was right when she said you can't be black and average because mm. you're going to get less than. You're not going to get average. You're going to get less than. Um. So that exceptionalism and that bearing has, I think, moved from a physical burden of whether it's children, whether it's weight, not, and I would say physical weight too, but I would just say like the weight of like, of, of labor, right. Of, of, of manual labor of that type of work, um, that has moved into an, I think a more of a intellectual, spiritual weight. Mm. Wow. So you still you still have to still orient like uh, there's something that is just generationally absorbed, right? Yeah. But it shows up differently. It's no longer that you are taking care of five, six children, maybe, or you know, being the mother in the neighborhood, or you know, working twenty hours a day, and in the way that it used to show up traditionally in the South in some spaces, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't live in. I don't live in the south. Right. But it still shows up for me, and, and this is how it shows up for me. That's so real. Like the having to be. We. I mean, we use the concept model minority when we talk about Asians, but I think Black women adopt that, and it hasn't been discussed as much. Mm-hmm. Like above yeah. and beyond. Yeah. And I think it's about being able to carry more, mm-hmm. to endure more, whether it's trauma, stress, etc. being prepared, right? Yeah. And that's why I've been really working in the past few years, I'd say, on my grace with black women, like us as deserving of the mm-hmm. utmost grace that I can offer. If I have grace to offer, I want to place it with us first. Mm. Because we need to be able to give each other space to show up as yeah. regular, like like just normal every day. Yes, yes. <laughs> I feel you. Mm-hmm. So that that goes back to the question, though. The larger question is, what would the world be like if it loved you? If it loved black women like you? What would the world be like if it loved black women like me? So I'm going to spin this a little spin bit. Spin it. Because we live in a society that likes to engage in a, lo- a lot of othering. Mm-hmm. And because I think I sit with a certain degree of privilege and power, um, I think the world loves me just fine. Mm, okay. Break it down. But when I see myself in another black woman who may not have 
they may have a certain degree. They could have the same degree that I have, but they might present themselves in a way, or they might be of a certain shade of brown, or might wear their hair in a certain way, or might be of a certain body size, or might have a certain physical feature, right? Mm -hmm. That communicates to the world that they are less than. Got it. And they might, they might communicate or, and then I think it's this very stereotypical, you know, ways of dehumanizing people, mm-hmm. right? That they're loud, that they're ghetto, that they're ignorant. I want to know what the world would, would be like if it didn't love me. I think the world loves me just fine. I can go anywhere and I'm treated with a certain amount of respect. Mm. Maybe partly it's because I command that respect. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because I think I think I know how to navigate spaces and systems very well because I've been in, I've lived in so many different spaces yeah. and systems that, that haven't reflected me. And in order to be successful, I had to figure out how do I get my needs met. Right. But I want what I would want is for when you have that that traditional. And you wrote about this on your your homepage. Mm-hmm. I saw it up there. This concept of of how people can say, oh, you know, I'll just give an example. I'll never forget it. And this was, and and this is on the, ooh, this is another psychology term, but it's about um, a racial identity development. Mm-hmm. And I was raised in a certain way, and I think that I, I have a certain interpersonal style. That might be a little bit more conservative, right? Um, growing up in, in upper middle class white America. Got it. And I'll never forget, I was a freshman in college, walking along uh, Lake Michigan with my roommate, who is this quintessential, and not, not in a stereotypical, quintessential in a stereotypical way, but not in a derogatory way. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be derogatory, but um, she is a quintessential blonde um, beautiful in that way, mm-hmm. Barbie doll looking white girl. And she and I, we had, we had a really good relationship. We got along just fine. And we're walking down the lake and I said to her, I said out loud and there was this group of African-American folks enjoying themselves, yeah. but I judged they're enjoying themselves as them being loud and mm-hmm. get up. And I got to own that. Judging them, yeah. And I remember saying something like, "I wish my people could just be a little bit more something, like better, mm-hmm. or you know, I don't know why they got to be like that, right?" Yeah. And I remember her saying to me that those aren't your people; you're not like them. Mm. What did that and mean to you in that moment? What's that? I said, what did that mean to you in that moment? In that moment, I knew that she saw me as differently. And clearly because of my where I was in my own racial development journey, I saw myself as being differently. But I knew that the world saw us as the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The world sees us as the same. That the brother on the corner, the sister who is doing whatever... They see us as one, two, you know, two peas in a pod. Mm-hmm. We're the same. Mm-hmm. There's no differentiation. And while I, I started this conversation of what would be the world, what would the world be like if it loved me, right? 
I recognize that I think that the world does treat me differently, but there are spaces and that there are times where the world sees all black women as being the same. Right. And I think, as you said, extending grace back to black women, that we have to treat each other as the same. Right. So in that moment, did it feel affirming for you to be called different or did it no, feel like a, uh, Oh felt, shit. It felt like, it felt <laughs> like when you call your, your, when you say something negative about your family and yeah. somebody agrees with you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> agreeing with me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can talk about my mama all I want. You on the other hand, don't say nothing. She's <laughs> <laughs> you know? like, Oh, what you say about my mama? Moment. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm See, I think that might be developmentally you were in a you were in a place in racial identity development and, and potentially age to be able to have that understanding. Because I can recall a time in my youth before 18, like literal childhood, where a white friend saying to me, well, you're different, meant the world to me, meant like I am different and that makes me better. Mm-hmm. And coming to terms with that part of my life and that part of my racial identity development gives me a lot of a lot more compassion and empathy when I meet someone now in an earlier stage of racial identity development than I am. Mm-hmm. So I can kind of sit with what looks to me like internalized depression. Yeah. So what is this world then? So you you describe this narrative for me, which really captures how you grow to understand yourself as a racial being. And mm-hmm. I wonder what the world would reflect back if it loved black women who aren't quite like you, who have not yeah. learned to cold switch or adapt to predominantly white environments in ways that help keep them safe or, and or unjudged. Like if they didn't have to do. Exactly. Like, Mm-hmm. What would it be like, you know, Mark Lamont Hill talks about this is like, you know, black people cannot behave their way out of, of, of being targets for mm-hmm. police brutality and violence. Mm-hmm. You, they cannot behave better, right? Like it, it shouldn't be about behaving. Yeah. Um, but what would it be like? I think that it would create another level. I think it would just... Oh, what would it be like? For me, I I wrote down this concept as I was taking notes called targeted universalism, uh, which is coined by uh, Professor John Powell at the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. And Professor Powell shares that when we elevate and create solutions and change for our most marginalized individuals, um, then everybody benefits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everybody, every single person. 
So it, it, it is to push back against that argument and that narrative of, well, if I do something for one group, then it's not fair for mm-hmm. the other ones. Mm-hmm. And targeting universalism says, no, if you do something specifically for one group that is the most underserved, it's going to change the game for everybody. Right. And so if I were to, to pinpoint what that group is, uh, I would say our most marginalized in in our Western Amer- you know, American world would be trans women of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the true question, if I were to really drill it all the way down, what would the world be like if it loved trans women of color? Mm-hmm. What would it to be? See, to see them as women, to see them as human beings, to see their bodies as, as valued in the world, not yeah. object, not objects, not objectified, not sexualized. Um, what would happen to the world? Mm-hmm. I think that we would move around in a space of more acknowledgement. Mm. Acknowledgement of, of? Of of humanity. Yeah. Because I think that uh, underneath what is unspoken is, is that some people are human and some people are not. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. When you think about how people treat those that are homeless or addicted and whatnot and judge them for that. And I probably just said that in a judging way, right? Mm-hmm. That there's this othering that happens that dehumanizes folks. Yeah. And in our current socio-political climate, there is a whole lot of othering and dehumanization. And I don't care what people say about this whole Syrian missile attack as a response to 45's acknowledgement of the suffering in Syria. That's some bullshit. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. they've been suffering in that space for a very, very long time, visually, for a number of years, and our Western world has turned a blind eye to them. Yeah. It's not opened its doors to them. Uh, you've had governors and mayors go on the record saying that they're not going to accept any refugees, and your response to that is not love, but it's it's uh, violence. Yeah. Yep. So... I don't know why I got on that tangent. No, because it's real and it's relevant right now. It's relevant right now. And it has significant ties to who we see as human and who we don't see as human. And how we pretend that we're seeing humanity when in fact we have another agenda. Yes. Yes. What identities and others do you sometimes struggle to love? some of it um uh, <laughs> and, I, and i teach about this a lot when i teach about um allyship um and some other topics around diversity is really recognizing what's going on for us internally mm-hmm. as we move closer or further away from people in the world and oftentimes i'll utilize an example of of someone being homeless and and I have a colleague who I think has another way of saying that and I can't 
remember it right now because, or, or without like a, a living, a living space or a mm-hmm. dwelling, um, that if you think about moving down the street, walking down the street, and if you've ever crossed the street to avoid somebody, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that is a, an experience that only you get to navigate with yourself. Yeah. Nobody's going to call you out for crossing the street, right? No one's going to know why you cross the street. Maybe you're going in that direction, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not awkward to cross the street. But if you see somebody a block away and you intentionally cross the street, what's going on for you internally between your relationship, between your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions, right? Mm-hmm. The action is crossing the street. What's the thought? What's the feeling that's creating the action? Um I think it's important for us to really own our shit. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't, that doesn't always mean, and particularly in those situations, sometimes I say, you know, if, if you, if I'm never going to judge someone's sense of safety in the world, mm-hmm. um, I think that some people have a, have an undue and unnecessary, you know, heightened sense of threat or harm. Yeah. But I also now live in the Bay area where I'm like, look, you need to just watch out for yourself. Right. Like, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I don't want to communicate judgment of, of one sense of safety, uh, because there are, there are legit threats and there are legit harms and people do, people have stolen from me several times, yeah. not direct, but you know, okay. Anyway, um, but what identities and others do I sometimes struggle to love? I'm going to make this a little bit more personal Okay. and think about the ways in which and acknowledge, right? This is you got to step into your truth. Mm-hmm. I was somewhere. I was at a an event, and Viola Davis was um, speaking, and she talked about you know owning your your ugliness, mm-hmm. and it's important to do because it's it's a level of authenticity, right? That, that we don't just get to be perfect all the time, and if yeah. all you want to do is communicate a perfect picture, then you're not relatable. Yeah, um, and you're not being truthful. Um, so I think for me in my relationships, recognizing that people are complex beings and I, I know it when people do it to me and I see it also when I do it to others, the guilty, I'm guilty, right? I will own it of taking the best parts of people and rejecting their worst parts of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if it's always an identity piece but sometimes we want the friend that's fun, but we reject the fact that they're messy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I feel you 100%. Right. Or like, you know, you're really good at this, but then you're too needy. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I struggle to take the whole of a person. Mm. And this is, this goes for people in my family, you know, this is yeah. everybody. Yeah. People that I work with, every relationship. I don't know if it's about the splitting of, of a particular aspect of one's identity, but that part, and traditionally, right, as psychologists, and I forget which discipline this is, but what they say is that, like, what we what we are irritated or aggravated by in someone else is a reflection of a value that we are rejecting in ourselves. Yeah, yeah. 
or something that we haven't worked out with in ourselves. Mm-hmm. I get that. For me, I've been working really hard on vulnerability, and I used to really have a distaste for other people's vulnerability. Mm. Like, just how dare you be open to the world? Like, <laughs> ugh, I'm so disgusted by that. And and then and then I and then I became a psychologist, and I was like, oh, I need to actually unpack all that for myself <laughs> and see what that means in me. Well, I mean, we can. That would take us in another hour to talk about black women and being able to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability isn't doesn't fit with this archetype of being strong. Right. Yep. It is, and it's treated differently when it shows up in the world. So then we're socialized differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our ability to be vulnerable in different spaces is actually treated differently and reinforced differently. Mm-hmm. Over time. And we actually are so vulnerable systemically that it's like, I don't want to act in that. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot to it. There is. Um, So, yeah, the identities and others that I struggle to love is just any part of them when I say, oh, I love this about you, but I can't stand that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And... To say, to really say, like, you know what? It's all, it's all in you, and I, and I probably wouldn't be able to see and, and benefit from this part of you that I love without the fact that you also possess this. Yeah, that's real. And then my final question, what do you love most about you? really hard question um my my sarcastic sarcastic narcissist wants to say everything right (laughs) i'm great um but in truth i would say that i show up Mm -hmm. um i pride myself on an aspect of my identity and my character being that I show up for people. Yeah. When you say show up, what do you mean? I think I'm. De- I, I think that I see myself as being a dependable, reliable person mm-hmm. who is always there in an emergency and who will go out of their way to make sure that other people have what they need when they really, truly, truly need something. Gotcha. You're a great person in a crisis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think about this for like, you know, my sister, every time that she's moved, um, that I've, and she's moved in, uh, now she lives internationally Mm. and I didn't go with her internationally, but, the first time that she moved from a space that she was living in Minnesota, she moved to Minneapolis. She got a new job. And I literally drove from Chicago and packed up her apartment, all of her stuff. It wasn't her apartment. She was staying somewhere. Packed up all mm-hmm. of her stuff while she wasn't there. And then drove around and found her another apartment and moved her. Wow. 
and that's just one, but that's my sister, right? Yeah. And, and she shows up for me in, a, in ways that like, you know, that, and it's, it's part of that trade of like, what do people, what can't people do for themselves that mm-hmm. you can do? Yeah. And what can't you do for yourself that other people can do for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's part of that, you know. I think it's related to vulnerability, but I, but I think it also relates to this interdependence mm. and we have been socialized to be so independent. I think that there are times and this, this word codependent, right. is so negative. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could really be in more community with each other. If we crew, if we were able to really barter and give to each other, our best of what we do and receive the best of what other people do. Wow. I love that. So the interdependence, that's something that really sticks out for me, that it's not solely relying on someone to take care of all your needs, but showing up in whatever your best is to give and receiving whatever someone's else, someone else's best is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we do that well, it's just so many, it's so many parts of our lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, from work to taxes, mm-hmm. <laughs> like financial mm-hmm. literacy to, uh, you know, health and nutrition and childcare and cleaning and, you know, like there are things that other people just do way better than me. Yes. <laughs> Especially on the, <laughs> and it doesn't and take them that long of a time to do it, right? But for me, it's gonna take all day, right? They could have knocked that out, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we, you know, we'd be on to something else. So it's it's tough because we, while we live, I mean, they talk about this shared economy, and it's like I wonder when we're really gonna get there. Mm. I wonder when we're really going to get there, right? Like, yeah, can we share a ride with a stranger, have a stranger drive us somewhere? Well, we're paying them, right? Yeah. That's different. That's different from saying, okay, well, I'm not going to pay you, but I'm going to do this thing for you. Yeah. I'm just going to participate in this without anything other than the barter, not a financial right. exchange. Right. I don't think I could do it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Same. Why not? <laughs> I mean, you can try a little ways, but yes. So what you love most is that you show up. That I show up. Mm-hmm. Well, I am so grateful to have had you on the show. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Lamisha. Thank you, Candice. Uh, this has been really a beautiful way to start my day. And I look forward to seeing what you create out of your podcast and out of your research project, How to Love a Human. Thank you for joining us. To connect and contribute, go to howtolovehuman.com. For more episodes, find Dr. Candace Nicole on SoundCloud and iTunes. If you like the show, leave a five-star review. Thank you, and see you next week.